Welcome back to the Complete History of Coffee, Episode 9, Coffee Overseas. Grab your favorite caffeinated beverage and let's get started. We are trying Sumatra today because it's going to be showing up later in the episode. Jay over here is uh, my co-host on the Garden Shed podcast. You guys have heard his voice before. He did a special clip on our uh, Ukraine episode. Oh, that's right. Film in Ukraine. Yes. So what, what are we going to do with our taste testing? Joe over here is a fellow coffee master at Starbucks. So I'm going to let him do a little bit of leading here. Oh, great. Okay. <laughs> well, the first step in a coffee tasting is smell. Oh. So we're going to cup our hand over the top of the cup. Get your nose in there. Sumatra. It smells like dirt. That's what I was going to say. It smells like <laughs> soil. Like garden <laughs> garden shed soil. You know what, though? There's a little bit of, like, roasty. There's a little bit of a... I don't know. A bit of a smokiness. A little sweet in there, too. It almost smells acidic. Sweet. Weirdly. Smoky. Yeah, you can usually smell bitterness. Okay. What are we doing next? I almost said it, but I'm going to let you do it. <laughs> slurp it. <laughs> Let's slurp it. Just like you would, like, wine. Oh, God. I really don't like Sumatra. There's your ASMR. It's um, kind of acidic. It tastes uh, like dirt. You know what? There's a little bit of spice to it, though. It's not like as much as Komodo There's Dragon. a little bit of a herbal spice. Yeah. Um, hardly. Acidity is kind of on the top or the tip. It's also about if it lingers or not. Right? Bitter's more of that like initial kick in the mouth, then acidity kind of lingers. There's a bit of a bitterness and a bit of an acidity to it. Because you get that initial kick of bitter, but then there's that lingering acidity. So I noticed, right. if I'm going to compare it to something, I recently tried Italian roast. And that lingered in the back of your throat. Oh, you didn't like Italian? No, it lingered. I really like Italian. It but lingered I like, I like Latin long. American coffees. And that one has like a lot of like chocolate nutty notes. It's right. very sweet. I actually do like the, the Latin bag, stuff too. But I don't know. I didn't like the Italian. This is way more drinkable. You like this? Oh, yeah. No, yeah. in general, like I said earlier, I don't really like the Sumatra. You don't really like dark roast though, right? No. But like more of a medium? This is tolerable. If I had to, I'd drink that. Okay. Well, well this is a For chocolate... Sure. What rice cake? Rice cake. Those Quaker rice cake. We're gonna things? try it. Let's see. I don't think the chocolate goes with it too well. As an aftertaste, it's good though. The chocolate counteracts a lot of it, gives you like a sweet aftertaste. Mm. But I feel like during when they're mixing together in your mouth, it tastes like a dark chocolate granola bar or something. Mm, that's why I don't like, like it. It's something like healthy. It's, like there's bitter. like not a lot of sugar. I don't like the bitter. It's like a dark chocolate Trader Joe's granola. Yeah. Yeah, that's what it is. It kind of tastes like a dark chocolate. I don't like dark chocolate. Mm. That's interesting because... Oh, this is where the chocolate's coming from, but... But this is, I think, because of the bitter. That initial bitter. It's like the bitter of the chocolate. This is obviously like sugary milk chocolate, and that makes it yeah, taste for sure. like dark. dark chocolate. Yeah. Well, let's try with this one, because this is probably a little bit more of a creamy chocolate kind of taste. These ones are like a, like a cookie, like those Oreo-type vanilla... I don't even know what it'd be called. It's like a mix. White and black cookie. Still an Oreo, essentially. Yeah. White and black. Well, that's really good with that. Did you do the whole cookie? or? Mm, it's like a half of it. Makes it really creamy. Because of that filling. So it tastes more like a milk chocolate. 
because otherwise it's kind of like a really creamy white chocolate but mixed with this it kind of makes it just like a it's okay you want just better? there's too much vanilla in the cookie i don't think vanilla goes with this very well it is creamy oh for me i like it i think it, it's getting rid of the bitter for me it did that like it did that for sure you know I think ideally, what would we wanted would have wanted with this, like a cinnamon coffee cake. I think something with a little with bit of caramel. Spice. I was actually almost thinking like a like a lunch dinner food, you know, like something with some spices in it. I think might have been good with it. Yes, yeah, like uh, New Mexican food, for example, um, right? Something with like uh, like chili or just some kind of like bell pepper or something. Like a spicy burrito with green chili or something. Something like that. Or, or like I had like a uh, I had like a. A green chili cheeseburger earlier, something like that might have been good. That's savory, like savory and spicy. Mm. I think something like that would have gotten really good with this. Savory is where it's at. Yeah. Next time. That's where we're gonna savory do. is a good spot to be. While we have already covered coffee history in France, this episode we will be taking a look at the coffee history of France and other European powers during the colonial era. As a reminder, next episode is our big recap of everything we have covered so far in this show, so make sure to ask any questions you might have about coffee, myself, or the show thus far. Once upon a time, there was a prince who was destined to take the throne of China, but after his mother gave birth to him, she discovered a dead bloody cat. This woman was Consort Lee a concubine of the emperor, and after this she fell out of favor with the emperor. But what everyone did not know is the prince was still alive and well, having been rescued by a servant and given to a man, Chin Lin, who then placed the child in the care of the eighth prince. See, the concubine was the victim of a plot by another of the emperor's concubines, who was jealous of Li. This other concubine had the baby switched out for a skin-civet cat by the servant was ordered to kill the baby. The servant disobeyed this order, which led to her own execution, but the baby would be raised by the eighth prince and would become a prince in his own right. The boy would become Emperor Rinzong, and his mother was elevated to Empress Dowager, a title given to the reigning emperor's mother. The civet cat is the name for the animal we commonly refer to as a kopiluak, a name which comes from Indonesia, with kopi meaning coffee and luwak referring to an Asian palm civet. We will catch up with coffee's story in Indonesia later this episode, as well as seeing the importance of the kopi luwak and why cat poop coffee has gained such a high price point on the coffee market. Seeking a way to keep up with the demand for coffee, European colonial powers sought to expand their empires physically and economically by establishing control over regions which could support coffee growing. We discussed previously the Dutch colony of Java and the labor system they established there. The Netherlands forced indigenous chiefs to supply them with coffee for low, fixed prices. These local lords acted like feudal lords in medieval Europe, Feudalism referring to a now disputed term used to describe landlords who granted peasants land in return for their service on that land, namely growing foodstuff as a form of rent. Coffee was the primary crop grown, and because it lacked nutritional value to the locals and they received no financial gain, they did not attempt to innovate growing techniques of the crop. 
The supply of coffee began making its way to Holland in 1711 and started the first European coffee exchange. This exchange started out slow, with 90% of the coffee in the Amsterdam exchange being from Yemen in 1721, but quickly grew by 1726 when 90% of the coffee was now from Java. Exports from Java would continue to grow until colonies in the Caribbean were able to compete. The Dutch held some part in this, setting up shop in Suriname, a colony which bordered the Caribbean. The Dutch introduced coffee there in 1712 and began exporting nearly a decade later, surpassing Java by the 1740s. Here, coffee was produced through forced slave labor. Near the coast of East Africa, France introduced coffee to bourbon in 1715. The island was unpopulated, so France gave out land grants to those who moved there to work the land with African slave labor. If you remember, France stole coffee from Yemen and planted it there, creating a new strain of coffee named after the island, bourbon. The French took their coffee growing very seriously, having even considered using the death penalty as a punishment for damaging a coffee tree. In 1723, coffee was introduced to the French colony of Martinique by Gabriel de Clieux. Gabriel was a French officer who returned from a station in the Caribbean to Paris in 1723. He saw an opportunity for coffee growing in Martinique's tropical climate, which was overlooked by the French nobility back home. So he took a coffee plant with him back to the Caribbean, and on the way he was apparently able to avoid being captured by a pirate of the time being attacked off the coast of Tunis and able to survive a storm at sea. This journey took far longer than he had intended, telling us he had to share his rations of water with the coffee plant to ensure its survival. The plant did survive and Gabriel planted it in his garden. It's from this one plant most of modern day Latin America's coffee trees are descended, the particular strain being Typica. The first coffee beans grew in 1726 and he used them as seeds to plant more coffee around the island. Before this time, Martinique was known for its cocoa, or chocolate, growing. Gabriel tells us, two years after the second harvest of coffee cherries on the island, a, quote, horrible tempest accompanied by an inundation, end quote, wiped out the cocoa plants, leaving room for the expansion of coffee growing. This supply of coffee led to the first commercial supply of coffee in the Western Hemisphere and was shared with the French colonies, including Saint-Domingue and Guadalupe. By 1788, coffee production in the French Caribbean had overtaken Dutch Indonesia. Ironically, it was the Dutch governor of Amsterdam who first gifted coffee to King Louis XIV that led to their own decline in this new global coffee market after Gabriel took a strain from that garden back to the Caribbean. And further, coffee had been taken to Indonesia from the very seeds which Baba Budin had taken to India after stealing them from Yemen. And if we assume our favorite goat herder did exist, then it was from coffee grown in the highlands of Ethiopia, which made way for coffee now being grown on a global scale. Some now believe coffee was brought over to the French Caribbean in 1724 from Bourbon or Suriname but in any case, it was now there. Coffee also made its way to France's Saint-Domingue, known today as Haiti, split between Spain and France. 
the French portion of the island went on to become the largest coffee producer in the Caribbean. It wasn't until the 1730s the French East Indian Company allowed coffee from its colonies to be sold in France as a way of protecting its monopoly on the more expensive coffee from Mocha. Coffee from the Caribbean and bourbon was instead sent to the Amsterdam Exchange, including an indigenous strain of coffee from bourbon known as Café Maron. After the coffee ban was removed, coffee became a more affordable product, which created a divide in French society. As the lower class was able to now purchase coffee, the upper class sought to distinguish themselves by drinking only coffee from mocha. By the 1780s, the Caribbean overtook Java and coffee exports, supplying 80% of the world's coffee, most of which was from Saint-Domingue. French success in coffee production at such a low cost was due to African slave labor. In 1798, a planter, P.J. Labaret, published an account of coffee cultivation in Saint-Domingue. His work describes the West Indian process of pulping the coffee cherries, using a water channel to soften it and passing it through graters. This is what we refer to today as processing the coffee. And based on his description, it seems like he's talking about some sort of early form of a washed process. He also goes on to talk about the slave labor they utilized, stating they must, quote, keep in his natural state of thraldom to obtain from him the requisite services, because under a different condition, he would not labor, end quote. Thraldom, referring to the word for slave, thrall, used by Vikings, so what he's saying here is slaves must be forced to remain slaves because if they weren't slaves, they wouldn't work on the plantations for free. I mean, I don't know about you, but I definitely would love to work on a plantation for free, even after being released from servitude. So besides stating the obvious, he also describes what attributes to look for when obtaining a slave, which are also fairly obvious such as they should look clean, cheerful, lively, strong, etc. He also explains what happens after buying a slave, which apparently involves making them drink sudorific potions to make them sweat out any diseases they may have picked up on their voyage. Further, he mentions branding them and assimilating them into slave labor through a process he referred to as needing to be seasoned. Part of me wanted to skip over most of this, as it does not specifically pertain to coffee history, but I think it's important to keep in mind the sad but important aspect of slavery on the history of coffee. So, with that said, Leveret also explained why he purchased younger slaves as their minds were more malleable, more likely to be reshaped and Europeanized. He saw talking back to a slave master as more severe than any offense which could take place between two slaves, including violent assault or even rape. Although perhaps his methods were only so effective as the slaves on the island would eventually overthrow their slave masters. The social hierarchy of Saint-Domingue was complicated by the fact there were so many Creoles, or people of mixed black and white heritage, Many Creoles, and even quite a few of the free black people, owned slaves themselves and ran their own plantations. 
These free Creoles were referred to as Jean de Color, accounting for about 28,000 people in the colony. White people made up around 30,000, but both groups were far outnumbered by the 465,000 slaves there. This was a clear issue, especially being so far away from any real immediate support by France. The tipping point came right in the middle of the French Revolution in 1791 when the slaves rose up in revolt. The revolution was led by Toussaint Louverture, a former slave who himself owned a plantation with several slaves. This revolution would take 13 years and come at a great cost following foreign intervention and attempts to repress the revolt. Napoleon, for example, in 1801, attempted to reassert French control on the island and fought until 1803, at which point he left stating, quote, damn coffee, damn colonies, end quote. So it was on New Year's Day of 1804, Haiti declared its independence and became its own nation, officially abolishing slavery. Over a thousand coffee plantations were destroyed in Haiti, including Labourets, and although new farms were established, Europe and the United States more or less embargoed Haiti as to not show support for a country under black rule. European coffee supplies were further diminished by England's naval blockade of France. Napoleon responded to this by pushing for homegrown chicory as a replacement to coffee, essentially copying Frederick the Great in Germany and the Confederate States of America, as we will see during the American Civil War. Apparently, this use of chicory was so common, even into the early 20th century, that William Euchers, co-creator of the journal Tea and Coffee, felt many Europeans had, quote, acquired a chicory and coffee taste such that it is doubtful they would appreciate a real cup of coffee should they ever meet it, end quote. While chicory coffee is no longer the norm today, Euchers may be just as dismayed by the amount of people who drink gas station coffee or those who leave their coffee out all day and then nuke it later. To any coffee microwavers out there, who hurt you? Please, just make a new cup of coffee. In any case, the first half of the 19th century saw an increase in European coffee consumption meaning someone would need to fill this growing need for coffee. Coffee became sold at colonial goods shops, and it was during this period we see the first drip coffee machines introduced. These new coffee makers were called the Belloy Pots, after the Archbishop of Paris, who had a great love of coffee. These first coffee machines placed a filter filled with coffee in between two chambers so the water poured in the top could drip into the bottom. Other coffee makers like the siphon and the hydrostatic percolator became popular in high society while brewed coffee became the norm for the masses. This demand for coffee led to the return of Javanese coffee. Java soon became synonymous with the word coffee in America. Yet much of this so-called Java coffee was likely from Indonesia more broadly. Coffee from this region took some time to reach the United States, with around five months of sailing time to arrive in New York. This shipping period led coffee to age, which is a process where the coffee flavor is able to develop like aging wine. 
So popular was this process of aging that not only did the coffee become more expensive as a result, but shipping coffee from Indonesia continued to be done by sailing ships even after steamboats were invented. As we have discovered previously, the Dutch established a system of collection which involved using local rulers to run something similar to feudalism. In the Dutch collection system, known by many as Max Havelier, resulted in the peasant class starving while the local lords were indulging in the crops they produced. Eventually, 60% of all crops grown in Indonesia would be coffee by the 1860s. Don't forget, they needed to still grow food for themselves and their families, so in the context of labor to pay, coffee took up 15% of their time growing crops while only paying 4% of their income. 1823 saw an economic disaster caused by coffee as war between Spain and France seemed imminent. Coffee sellers purchased mass amounts of coffee in preparation for the war, as it would be difficult to ship coffee after the war began. But when the war did not happen, there was now an abundance of coffee. Not only that, but coffee by this point was being shipped in from all over the New World out of Latin America. As a result, the overpriced coffee, which the suppliers originally bought, was now worth much less and led many to lose their money and businesses, with hundreds of people going as far as committing suicide. The English, for their part, worked to fill the demand for coffee left after the Haitian Revolution by using their newly acquired colony of Ceylon. They took control of this territory from the Dutch during the Napoleonic Wars and quickly pushed into the interior of the region, taking control of the Kingdom of Candy in 1815. They then cleared the forest and planted coffee in their place. These new plantations resulted in the death of many elephants which had lived in the forest, as well as many people who were forced to work the land. The Tamils, a people from the Indian region of Madras, were sent over to work the plantations, as many of them were in massive debt back home. This resulted in mass casualties, both on their journey to Ceylon and from working under the harsh conditions on the plantations. By the 1860s, England's colonies in India and Ceylon rivaled those of the Netherlands and Indonesia. This would all change, however, after one of the most devastating events in coffee history took effect, something which no one could have seen coming and is still ravaging coffee to this day. This act of Mother Nature is known as Coffee Leaf Rust and will heavily influence our story moving forward. Coffee Leaf Rust is a fungus which kills coffee trees, quickly spreading throughout Asia, destroying much of the coffee in Java, Sumatra, and the East Indies. It then traveled to Africa and the Pacific Islands, wiping out their coffee trees which led some to replace Arabica coffee with Liberia's native coffee tree, Cafe Liberia. This coffee strain was largely unpopular as it provided little flavor. However, it became a popular drink called Baraco in Malaysia and the Philippines, where they made the coffee as a very dark roast. And if you remember from our episode, Alcoholic Coffee Interview, we discussed how darker roasts of coffee largely eliminate a lot of the natural flavors of the coffee and replace them with a more intense and roasty flavor. Even this strain became affected by coffee leaf rust, however, and by World War I, 
Asia accounted for only 5% of the world's coffee supply, whereas they had supplied one-third of the world's supply prior to the arrival of coffee leaf rust. This forced coffee growing to shift to another region of the world, one also under the influence of European colonialism. This region is, of course, the Americas, and much like colonialism in Asia and as we've already seen in Haiti, these unjust social economic conditions would set the stage for many revolutions to come all across Latin America, as well as the coming American Revolution. This show is written and produced by me, Arizona. If you have not already, please consider supporting this podcast series on Patreon. For the price of a latte a month, you can support this and future projects in this series. And for anyone who is unable to become a member right now, no worries. Please consider leaving a review of this show on whatever platform you're listening on, as this not only helps me to see what you like or dislike about the show, but it also helps the show come up as a recommended podcast for new viewers. Make sure to join our community on social media at the Complete History Podcast Series. If you would like to contact us, you can message us through social media or at our email, completehistorypod at gmail.com. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a like on whatever platform you're listening to this podcast on. And make sure to share it with your friends, family, and coworkers. To close, here's a quote from Napoleon Bonaparte. I would rather suffer with coffee than be senseless. Thank you.